welcome to the Trossex World Apothecary podcast. I'm your host, Rox, and today we're delving into the secret life of chocolate with herbalist Marcus Patchett. We're going to be talking all about its history, its medicinal properties, how to make a great hot chocolate drink, all about the rituals, and everything else you ever wanted to know about medicinal chocolate. So I hope you enjoy the episode. Uh, and if you do, it'd be great if you liked it, shared it, told everybody all about it, and subscribed to the podcast. Now, if you want to find out more about me and the work I do, you can check me out on trossexwildapothecary.com and on Facebook and Instagram. Enjoy the podcast. Hi, hello, welcome. Hello. (laughs) Marcus has just written a book about the secret life of chocolate, Um, and I think I like it if people just introduce themselves rather than me going through your whole spiel. So if you could okay. just yeah, introduce sure. yourself, who you are, what what you do. Right. Uh, my name is Marcus Patchett. I'm a medical herbalist. So I treat people with plants. I call myself um, a hippie with a science degree because that's basically the truth. Um, so I did a I did a BSc in herbal medicine, and uh, about 15 years ago now, um, I dealt mainly with patients living with HIV, uh, practiced uh, in central London, working with patients living with HIV for a while. I worked for Neil's Yard for a while. Um, I taught at Middlesex University for five years on their BSc and MSc courses, um, actually as the clinical supervisor. So I technically wasn't a lecturer, although I did end up doing a lot of lecturing because anyway, whatever. But so I was there for five years teaching students on the MSc and BSc courses as a clinical supervisor seeing patients there and currently I work for Hartwood uh, online training herbalist so that's my like professional gubbins I'm also an astrologer on the side so that's the hippie bit that's the totally non-sciencey non-rational woo bit but I like that Um, and I've also the, the book I wrote over took me about 14 years honestly if I'd have known how long it was going to take when I started I'd just been like no okay I'm not going to do that but um it did it did take a while um but yeah yeah, I'm just surprised I keep hearing about people writing books and like 14 years I'm thinking wow that's amazing and there was another lady I'm interviewing later who's 40 years she spent writing her book as well wow (laughs) 40 (laughs) or zero okay I feel better that's good (laughs) It, it depends. I mean, particularly if it's, I mean, any book, I guess, can take time, fiction or non-fiction or whatever. Um, but it's just like you go down rabbit holes, or at least I did, because you open a thing and it's like, oh, I'll research this topic. And then you obviously need to travel and interview people and whatever. And that takes time. And if you're self-funded, you've got to find your own funding. Um, so it's there's practical issues, but mainly it's just it takes so bloody long. Um, but, you know, it's not a bad thing, I hope. <laughs> no that was actually one of the questions i was going to ask you was did you do a lot of um traveling to to yes to yeah you can probably tell right because there's a few photographs in the middle like of the taken in mexico and guatemala and stuff so I, yes i did six week trips three six week trips to mexico and guatemala uh 2008 2011 and 2018 and there was a long hiatus between the second and the third just because i was writing and because I was teaching and because um, I had to save up because <laughs> it cost money. Um, but yeah, so so those trips were mainly just field trips to research and to interview people. Um, and yeah, so that I did, I did a fair bit of travel. And, and in, in those trips, the first trip was me- just Mexico, but sort of going all around Mexico. So I started in Mexico City, just to start with the museums and libraries and kind of stuff there, and just like central sort of city type resources. And then I, I went to Oaxaca, because that's like culinary center of Mexico. So just looking at some of the ingredients, some of the processes there. Uh, and then I sort of just went round all the places that I'd read about in books or bits in libraries or just little references that I had to, Oh, they make this drink there or this ingredient comes from there. So I literally would just turn up in a place and randomly ask people, I would be staying in hostels and I just sort of like get it via Chinese whispers in hospital hostels. Like somebody would say, I'd, I'd say, Oh, I'm here researching chocolate. And they'd be like, Oh, have you spoken to blah, blah. So I'd end up going to see this. Place. So it was all kind of like the first trip. I didn't know who the hell to see. I just, I had a couple of names from books and a couple of like library start points. And then I just like went and found stuff out. And then by the second trip, I already had a, a little roster of people I wanted to connect with. And the third trip was 
a little bit more organized but i mean all the time it was kind of like a little bit like you get there and then the plan that was supposed to happen didn't quite happen so you'd end up meeting someone completely different it was you know it's the usual travel experience yeah so i was thinking that's the sounds like how what it was like when i was in south america <laughs> that kind of you start one one idea and you completely go off somewhere else yeah <laughs> Very much that, yeah. Did you find the, that people are still using chocolate in, like, as medicine today? N not really as medicine. A little bit. A little bit. Um, so I'm just chewing a calamus root today because I've got a bit of a cold, like the first time in six months. So this is helping. Um, so if I'm chewing... Anyway, whatever. Uh, I'm just conscious that I'm being videoed, so I'm actually... <laughs> okay. um, yeah, I, I, di I did. It is still used as chocolate. It is still used as medicine a bit, but not massively so um for example in in uh, mexico city there's a market that's called the witchcraft market just because there's like loads of little santeria stalls and stuff in it and they also sell loads of pets and animals and it's just a crazy big market um and there they had loads of herb stalls and one of the women there gave me a few recipe like recipes where they use cacao uh, one was for migraine one was to prevent pregnancy so but cacao was mainly used as a base i think for administering other things except the migraine one that was interesting that was cacao a strong cup of chocolate made once a week with a turkey egg like and then just drunk once a week and i'm like is that because turkeys have loads of tryptophan in them so it's a serotonin precursor or is it like purely magical symbolism and suggestion do you know what i mean it's like i I don't know, but I, I do wonder because it's a highly specific, right? And we know yeah. that turkey meat is a very mm -hmm. high tryptophan product. And yeah. cacao doesn't contain a lot of tryptophan, but we do know it's probably serotonergic because it definitely increases the turnover of serotonin. We know that from like the, it massively increases the level of 5-HIAA, which is 5-hydroxyindoleacetic acid, which is this serotonin metabolite in the system. And we know from like rat experiments that it increases serotonin levels in the rat's brains. We don't know if it does that in human brains because as yet nobody has killed a human after giving them chocolate and cut their head open to find out. So, you know, that's just the way science is done these days. But um, it, the, the interesting thing there is I, I wonder whether there's a, a chemical basis to it. But in terms of general medicinal use, not not so much now. I mean, folklorically, like people would take it maybe to help recover from illnesses, but not not so much anymore. I mean, the traditional healers that I spoke to, the coranderos and people who used cacao, mainly used other parts of the tree for its medicinal use now. So they mainly use like the flowers or the leaves, okay. not so much the seeds. But the seeds and the the cacao drinks are still used in coranderismo rituals so they still have ritual use and one extant sort of um, medicinal use of cacao in contemporary Guatemala that's still very mainstream is uh, galactagogue so for breastfeeding women to maintain the milk supply and I talk about that in the book that there may be a sort of chemical basis to that physiochemical basis um, which is due, due to this little trace constituent in it called salsolinol, which um, increase, it has some, um, I think, prolactin-inducing effects. But anyway, so I talk about that in the book. That is a possibility, but it's certain and, and more certain that because it's cacao is nutritionally good, it's nutritionally rich, and it's a storable food substance it's a bit like the one thing you could guarantee in a fairly poor country like guatemala which occasionally is subject to food shortages because you know distribution and government corruption and whatever you can be sure of dried maize and dried cacao so that like making an atole which is a maize based sort of drink like a thin gruel and adding cacao to it is a useful way of getting loads of vitamins and minerals into your diet you know at a time when maybe other things aren't quite so available or storable so yeah. yeah and then what kind of form are you talking about in the cacao i mean obviously you're not talking about you know just normal chocolate that we find in the shops but no are you talking sure about like 100 percent chocolate or are you talking about okay um the, the 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 traditional forms of cacao that the whole book is really about is about the cacao as a drink as a beverage the seeds were traditionally made into drinks just with water and various other botanical ingredients i'm gonna that door's gonna keep banging 
Um, but yeah, so the the traditional form was not the chocolate bar is a is a modern invention. I mean, I talk about all that in the book. I don't go into I do go into detail, but I don't spend too long about it in the book about that because the book is mainly about the pre-Columbian ancient historical forms of chocolate, what chocolate or cacao was for most of its history. If you consider that cacao started being cultivated by humans, probably somewhere around 10,000 BC, we know that the earliest sort of remnants sort of confirmed traces of chocolate in sort of ceramic whatever they found traces of theobromine one of the alkaloids in cacao in ceramic was around 300 bc and then it was only taken to europe in what 1525 or right thereabouts and then it only became made into a sort of eating chocolate bar for regular consumption in the 19th century yeah 19th century i think so that's a very tiny proportion of yeah. cacao's history. Yeah, exactly. That is, it's an edible sort of format in, in that way. That the Mesoamericans did make cacao beans into a solid form. So they used to just grind the seeds, uh, sometimes with spices, usually with other spices or plants, and sometimes just on their own. And then that cocoa liquor, the ground cocoa seeds, which are very high fat, they're 50% fat. So it forms a liquid when it's ground. And then it obviously solidifies as it cools, as long as your ambient temperature drops below 33, 30, 30 degrees Celsius. Like cocoa butter starts to melt at around, I think, 27, 28 degrees Celsius. Um, but in Mexico, like depends on the region because some regions are, are just baking all the time, but some regions actually get pretty cold. It's a very biodiverse terrain because there's mountainous terrain and the mountains get really cold at night, you know? Um, and so there's sort of, you've got every terrain possible in Mexico, really. You've got sort of these really humid tropical bits and then you've got these really arid hot bits and then you've got arid hot and cold bits and you've even got cold bits. So it depends where you are. But um, the point about that is that once it's set, they could transport it in that form. And it's difficult to imagine that somebody wouldn't have nibbled on it at some point, like yeah. soldiers would have had that as a ration. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's likely that it was eaten, but the main form, those tablets were mainly used for making drinks. So it's that they, they would have been dissolved or rather broken up and then hot water or tepid water, not, not cold because it wouldn't work in cold. The water would have to be at least 30 degrees Celsius to get the cocoa butter to melt so you can mix it. Um, and that was poured onto it and then it would be frothed. So there are all these really elaborate drinks um, made from it that, you know, that the, some of them are just astounding. So it's like food anyway, really, when you look into what food is and culinary traditions, it's kind of mental. It's like, how did they think of sticking that in a pit for six months to let it rot and then putting it out and then, you know what I mean? It's like, it's crazy. Um, but there are, there are thousands of different traditional recipes using it but pretty much all of them are beverages okay and yep. so how would that translate over here so if we wanted to to use it here what what kind of what would we use here to okay well you could buy the yeah yeah yeah. valid question well i mean the, the thing about the book is i've got a recipe section which is chapter eight the formulary which gives you precise quantities and procedures and tells you how to make stuff you can order cacao beans or cocoa seeds so just order the seeds and toast them yourself and you can buy them online. So you just buy some cocoa seeds, like a, a, a simple site is Mex Grocer. They sell cacao seeds, but you can get them from loads of places. Um, obviously there are different types of cacao seed, which I talk about. If you really want to go traditional like roots, you would want Central American Criollo. Criollo is posh cacao, but it's, it's, it's the native cultivar. Um, because there are lots of different genotypes of cacao. And the one that was indigenous to Central America is now known as the Criollo type. Um, the one from South America, I mean, there are actually several, but there are three main types in the world. There's Criollo, which is Central American in origin. There's um, Forastero, which is South American. And there's Mestizo or Trinitario, which is same thing and they're they're mixed they're a hybrid of the two so the forastero from the rainforest hence the name that is higher yielding 
and has more polyphenols in it, making the seeds a darker purple in color because it's more proanthocyanidins, which have this you know pinky purpley color, um, and sourer tasting, and it's more robust and disease resistant. But the Criollo cultivar, which is indigenous to Central America, which all the traditional drinks were made of, the beans are paler because there are less proanthocyanidins in. Now, interestingly, I've heard some people in some books will seen things where people say, oh, they've got less antioxidants in them. Maybe not, because they seem to be much higher in procyanidins, which are the uh, breakdown products of the proanthocyanidins. So they're less purple, but they've got more of the flavanols. So they've got more of the smaller flavanols and less of the larger polyphenol precursors in them. But they certainly also have more caffeine in them and they're less sour in taste. And they were obviously hybrid developed over a few, few thousand years of cultivation to be that way, you know, to be milder in taste, to be more stimulating. But the, the trade-off is that they were more, less disease resistant, they're more susceptible to disease and they're harder to cultivate. So that's the Central American type. So if you're gonna make uh, really authentic drinks, you want your Central American Criollo beans that are pretty hard to come by. You can find them, you have to scour the internet for them. Um, but they're pretty hard to come by because there's no international market for those beans really. Um, so if you wanted to do it from scratch, you just get some good quality cacao beans. And then I I'd walk you through it in the book, like you toast them and then you have to shell them and then you have to grind them. And there's, you know, I go into all the process and how to do that. And then once you've done all that work, you will have uh, some little cocoa tablets or discs that you can just set. You just pour the liquid onto greaseproof paper and let it set. It's fine. Uh, in little, you know, you end up with little discs, little puddles that set, and then you just break them up into hot water and um, add sweetening of your choice. So maple syrup. You can do them not sweet because most of the traditional drinks were not sweet. Um, but the basic is just the seeds, which you grind, and then you just break those tablets into water and then whisk it up with a bit of sweetening or not uh, chili or not cinnamon or not whatever you want to add to it if you're making really traditional drinks and the recipes are all there then you use traditional spices a lot of those spices you may have noticed are not available in the uk you can't get them unless you travel to mexico because they're all guatemala because they're indigenous mexican spices but there are several recipes in the book that you can make even if you're in Europe or North America and you don't have access to those ingredients. So you, you know, pretty much everyone can get hold of vanilla, um, allspice, uh, what else? Uh, anato. It's a bit of a rare one, but you can get hold of it. It's, it's a red sort of pigment, but you can get it on online sites like Mex Grocer or um, in the UK Baldwin's the herbalist sells the seeds. They're just red pigment seeds. Um, Anyway, you get the idea. A lot of the ingredients for some of the recipes are available. So you can reconstruct some of them, but some of the more elaborate traditional recipes, you probably couldn't, <laughs> unless you go there. Yeah. So, um, so two questions. One, can you, would you, can you use, well, instead of going through all the whole process of grinding the seeds from scratch, can you use some of the cacao? Yes. Yes, you totally can. That's a very good question. So that's the, so if you don't want to put yourself through the, 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 okay. Yes. It's the short answer. So there are certain companies like there's Willie's Supreme Cacao who does a great block of what's called Couverture, which is just, um, oh, yeah, pure cocoa liquor. Exactly. It's <laughs> just the beans, which <laughs> <laughs> is the beans that have been ground and then set, you know, so there's no added cocoa butter. There's no extra fat and there's no added sugar. It's just, that's all it is. So, um, so, Willie's Supreme Cacao is a really good UK brand, but any brand of Couverture would, would do the job. So you could get some really posh brand like Valrhona, um, whatever. If it's Couverture Cacao, that's basically just set cocoa liquor and that will do perfectly. The difference is when it's industrially processed, Willie's is one of the best because it's single estate, meaning all the beans are of, of the same type grown in the same location but they're still industrially roasted, meaning they're roasted at uniform high temperature. So you get this uniform taste and texture and smell, which is great, beautiful for culinary purposes. But when you toast the beans yourself, you get a variation and typically you toast them at slightly lower temperatures. Mm -hmm. So you lose less polyphenols and you get more pharmacological diversity in the product. So you get 
a greater complexity of flavor. You've got a few more bitter and sour notes, but a few more really interesting mm. aromatic notes that you lose in the industrially processed chocolate, which is typically being roasted at a higher temperature and then conched, which means it's put into a big machine which sort of beats it to, to make the particle size really small so it's smooth. But then mm -hmm this can go on for like up to two days. So you lose a lot of volatiles, which is part of the point because they want to get rid of some of the acids from fermentation to get rid of some of the sour taste, but you lose a lot of pharmacological complexity. So when you make it yourself, the flavor is noticeably more complex and the effect is noticeably more potent. So ordinary factory produced drinking chocolate, particularly if it's good quality, like Willie's cacao is great, it definitely gives you a bit of a buzz and it's noticeable. But if you make it yourself, um, it, the effects can be another level up, which okay. um, I'm all, all for. So, yeah, you know, it's, a, it's, it's like anything. It's like <laughs> homemade bread or it, it, yeah. but it is still, it's very like bread making in that sense, in the sense that you can make a really shit homemade bread, you know? So <laughs> you can, you know, you can, but if you, if you practice and get good at it, you can make, bread that's like way better than anything you can buy do you know what i mean so it's if you're really gastronomically inclined buy the beans and experiment and if you're like do you know what i'll just get then that's fine you can just get the couverture chocolate and the spices and just grind the spices and add them to the chocolate the other advantage i'll, I'll finish rattling on about this in a minute but it's just a, the other advantage to to making it yourself is that when you're grinding the beans you typically grind the beans once coarsely and then you'd add the spices at that point and grind it again so the spices get fully incorporated into the into the fat and into you know that the, the, the flavors all sort of meld whereas when you're making it from couverture obviously you've got your block of couverture and you've got your spices so you grate your couverture or whatever, and then you put it in your jug and you're ready to pour in your boiling water. And then you have to powder your spices and put that in. It's a, it's a fine difference, but it does make a difference. Do you know what I mean? So it's, it depends how, how much of a chocophile and food snob you are, I guess. <laughs> and so the next question is going to be, um, not cause I'm, it's going to be, what's the word? Um, not traditional because like, so if you're using the traditional spices um would you would you ever change them and use some of like the herbs that we have around here for example like that's an it yeah that's like a really yes yeah 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 yes yeah totally i mean that would totally be in line with the tradition in mexico i mean they, they the recipes that they use are in terms of the recipes that are still sold in Mexico and Guatemala today are very traditional. So they have, you know, these are the ingredients and these are the proportions and there are loads of local variations and every household may make them with slightly different proportions or, you know, but they're pretty much the same because they're traditional. However, there are so many different variations and they seem to follow a similar formula in a sense, like there's the, Obviously, a lot of them use maize, which is a, a, a padding to make them into a toles, basically gruels. It reduces the cost, increases the nutritional value, yada, yada, yada. But traditionally, the high class drinks would just have been made with the cacao and the spices without the maize. And the formula seems to me to be to be beans, something aromatic, usually flowery, which has an aroma and, and imparts an amazing sort of extra scent to it, like vanilla or they use magnolia flowers or these other flowers called uh, Rosita de Cacao, which we called, I think, I think the Aztecs called them Cacahuazocho, which just means flower of cacao, which is very similar to the Spanish, Rosita de Cacao, Rose of Cacao, or Little Rose of Cacao. Um, anyway, they, so the, there are loads of different traditional flowers. Uh, this other one that smells like jasmine uh, called Bureria Juanita, which is jasmine of the Isthmus jasmine, they call it now. Um, so aromatic flowers, cacao or some sort of aromatic spice and cacao and often a foaming agent so something to help it produce a big head of foam because that was really traditional so you absolutely i mean it would be consistent with that formulation to use european plants and of course traditionally they also used cacao as a base 
for other medicinal herbs and it is a great flavor disguiser so i've done that on several occasions i've prescribed chocolate to patients like to have a cup of chocolate every morning and then but i say make this herbal tea first and then use that tea as the base for the chocolate so it just becomes a great yeah exactly because obviously it's got its own medicinal properties Mm -hmm. but you can also use cacao as this sort of grade one flavor disguiser for other plants i mean it's not going to cover everything up something intensely bitter like wormwood or gentian you're just going to ruin your chocolate but (laughs) lots of other things it can totally go with and 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 it's it's a really good flavor disguiser um so yeah from that point of view from the pragmatic point of view and from the point of view that that was how it was used at least in some you know parts of mesoamerica before the conquest they definitely added other herbs to it for medicinal effect um but if you're gonna try and replicate the formula for a traditional chocolate drink here then you absolutely could you could use aromatic herbs like mint or basil or something like that and grind it into the cacao beans and just uh, play with it a bit and in terms of foaming agents i don't know what we'd use that because the, there are certain very specific plants that they use because obviously there are lots of plants that can produce a foam but many of them are not agreeable to the human stomach so you've got to choose your plant pretty carefully so over there the difficulty is that a lot of the plants they use have to be used fresh and are indigenous so i found four there are probably loads more but the four that i found two were species of milkweed vine which is a tropical vine called gonolibus is the genus um, and they used it the sap or the inner inner bark one was sarsaparilla a native mexican sarsaparilla but they didn't use the root they used the fresh stem and again it was the stem of the fresh plant and it has to be used fresh they're like you can't dry it doesn't work um i i wanted to try that i was i i tried to bring some back to the uk but because i bought it in tropical veracruz i like hung it up to dry and it just all rotted within about a day it's like okay brilliant okay so i don't have a dehydrator with me i don't have anything to you know so whatever it would have been because I, I, I'm like, would it? Because presumably they, this will have been verified over centuries. Like maybe the the constituents which saponify, maybe the saponins in it degrade when it dries. But sarsaparilla root pr- creates a pretty foamy decoction. So I'm I'm not convinced that they're like, oh, it has to be used fresh. Well, maybe it has to be used fresh for the flavor of your recipe. But maybe there's anyway, whatever. So that's a possibility, maybe. But don't substitute sarsaparilla root for it because it's not the same part you know and it'll add its own flavor and whatever um and then the what's one the, that oh sorry it just what's the foaming part for does it have a purpose uh, it just creates foam a head of foam so chocolate when you when you um mix cacao seeds it with water they do create a little head of foam like a little cappuccino head of foam but when you add the foaming agents it massively amplifies the head of foam and you see in all the traditional mesoamerican like all the pictures that we have of it, all, all the illustrations and all the descriptions describe this voluminous head of foam. And a lot of the atolles in Central America now still are served with this huge head of foam that you can eat with a spoon in some cases. And the foam was thought to be the most delightful part of the drink. It was kind of a, and I see, see it as, as partly it's a, it's it is sort of just gastronomic it's like having this light airy foam with all these sort of aromatic bubbles and partly it's a drug delivery system because it's delivering essential oils right into you know what i mean it's like all the volatile stuff these little you know you're 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 just bursting little aromatic stuff in your mouth when you when you drink it that way so it but it's it the foam there was also a sort of metaphysic to it like foam was I mean, I talk about this in the book, which is divided into sort of three sections. The first section, which is quite small, is just about the history, sort of outlines it. The middle section, which is the biggest section, is about the medicinal uses and the pharmacology, and that contains the recipes and all that. And then the last section, which is intermediate, that's the metaphysics or the mythology of it. And in the last section, I do talk a little bit about the foam and the meaning of it, um, because it was thought to be something analogous to to life force, like a and this makes sense because things which foam in nature are fermenting they're ferments they they are literally alive you know that it's it's evidence of life 
Um, so cacao would have the foam whipped into it and they would literally envisage that as beating life into the drink. So there's even a thing about uh, for one of the atoles and this bit of folklore is still alive in contemporary Mexico. Generating the foam on some of these atoles takes a bit of skill because you've got to whisk it with a hand whisk and it, it takes a while. So they would normally get women to prepare these. It's traditional sort of women's job making food and men just sort of sit around and don't do a lot except when they're working. But anyway, whatever. that's how they set it up. So the women be making this. And honestly, these women who make these things, like they, can, they can grind like a pile of corn to like a pulp in about five seconds. And sort of I'm there like, oh, this is really hard. You know, and they're just like, they're used to it. They're just incredibly good at it using their utensils. But if a woman can't make it foam, what they'll do is they'll send her out and say something's wrong with her and they'll get some pregnant woman in to do it. And it, ha it has to be a pregnant lady because she's got double the life in her. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? So yeah. it's kind of like to whip the life into the drink. It's, it's a fascinating sort of idea. It's very much in line with the traditional idea of sort of chi or pneuma or prana, you know, the idea of breath, life. It's a, they, they had a similar, I can't remember that the Zapotecs called it P, which always makes me laugh, but uh, it's the same thing. It's the idea of uh, breath and life. And so foam is, is evidence of that in the drink and you're actually putting that into the drink. Okay. So you're also putting intention in presumably, then, yeah. which is another reason why you'd want to make it yourself. Yes, exactly. I mean, I, I don't think they would have thought of it in those terms traditionally necessarily, mm -hmm. but that, is how it looks to me yes mm -hmm. as well definitely <laughs> and um so obviously chocolate's fermented so those the fermented properties of chocolate does does that have a, still have an effect on the microbiome uh you're so two couple of things to say that first firstly it's not always fermented you okay. can get partly fermented cacao which is called cacao lavado which means it's just been fermented for one day and then taken out and there are a couple of recipes very few and far between that call for unfermented cacao but that's really rare most mostly cacao it's thought was at least partially fermented the interesting thing though is this is controversial i talk about this in the book is that in the pre-columbian accounts which are very few and far between because all the accounts we've got in writing are of course post-columbian they're spanish writing down after the conquest mm -hmm. so what native informants told them because although the, the classic Maya had writing, you know, their hieroglyphs, the classic Maya civilization sort of fell apart 600 years before the Spanish arrived. So by the time the Spanish arrived, the native populations had picture writing, pictograms, but they didn't have a proper logographic writing anymore. And to add to that, most of the traditional records were subsequently destroyed by missionaries, you know, because they were like you know, idolatrous, devil worshipping, blah, blah, blah. So they just, you know, they're all destroyed. So there's a problem in, in knowing exactly how much stock to put in these accounts, not because they're necessarily untrustworthy, just because there are so few of them in some cases. So none of the accounts, funnily enough, specifically mention fermentation when they're describing the process they say they they pick the beans and then they put them in the sun to dry and it's like well hang on what about that but the fermentation does seem likely to me to have been done just because it's such an integral part of a lot of the traditional drinks including those drinks which don't contain any european ingredients so if it was only drinks that had european additives but even in those places where like particularly in central Guatemala, some of the drinks have no European, they, they don't contain milk and they don't contain sugar and they don't contain cinnamon and they're still using fermented beans. But uh, the beans they use in say Guatemala and Alta Verapath where they still, to some extent, some people still drink traditional chocolate drinks without any Europeanized additives. They are using cacao lavado, which means only fermented for one day so slightly fermented to get to the second part of your question which is about the microbiome um do fermented cacao drinks affect the microbiome the human microbiome differently from raw cacao beans i don't know that research has not been done the research on cacao and the microbiome 
we've got a bit of that. We know that cacao definitely affects the human microbiome and does so very beneficially. Uh, according to the bit of human research we've got, it increases the amount of bifidobacterium and lactobacilli and decreases the amount of unpleasant, un, like basically reduces dysbiosis, which is fascinating. Um, yeah. That may be behind some other human research, which shows that moderate intakes of cacao, like about 20 grams a week, three times a week, 20 grams, three times a week or so, is sufficient to reduce CRP, which is a marker of inflammation, C-reactive protein in the blood. Um, and interestingly, that has a J-shaped curve to it. So if you eat no cacao, obviously you'll get no effect on the inflammation. And if you eat tons of it, it doesn't affect inflammation as much as just eating a moderate amount. So I do wonder if that's a microbiome related effect. Um, anyway, whatever. <laughs> that's interesting, that's good. <laughs> So can you talk more about the medicinal properties of chocolate? Um, yes. <laughs> I mean, it's, there's, there's a lot. Uh, the, the, main, the main research today obviously focuses, or not obviously, if you, you may not know, but focuses on uh, the cardiovascular properties. So we know that cacao increases circulation, increases peripheral circulation, increases circulation to the brain, to the skin, everywhere. And it does so pretty quickly. Like if you give somebody a dose of chocolate, dark chocolate or high polyphenol cacao or traditional drinking chocolate, and then give them a, a, a CAT scan, and this has been done, you'll find that the uh, blood flow to the brain is increased by, the blood flow to the frontal lobes in these scans was increased in these volunteers by 20% after they'd been given chocolate. So the circulatory effects are pretty strong. We know that it reduces inflammation in the linings of blood vessels. And this may be behind the several population studies by now using thousands of participants in different parts of the world that have shown that the, the, the people who consume the most chocolate have the lowest risk of heart attack and stroke. And this seems to be independent of other dietary and behavioral, behavioral variables so that um, those who are consuming something like six to seven grams of chocolate five times a week or more. So not a crazy amount, but six, to seven grams of whole cacao. So that'd be like maybe 15 grams plus of good quality dark chocolate five times a week or more um, had something like their relative risk of heart attack was reduced by about 42% and their relative risk of stroke was reduced by somewhere around 39%, depending on the study, you know, but they, they, they all sort of come in at somewhere between 29 and 45% risk, relative risk reduction, which is pretty good. That doesn't mean on an individual level, your risk reduction is that. That's the thing people get muddled with statistics go, oh, if I eat chocolate five times a week or more, I'm half, I, my risk of half a heart attack is halved. No, doesn't mean that. It's a relative risk reduction over a whole population. What it means is if you give a million people that much chocolate three times a week or more, then yay, you know, loads, loads less people will get heart attacks. But on an individual level, it won't reduce it quite that much. But it's still notable. It will still reduce your risk of getting a heart attack in the same way that smoking will elevate it. It will more than offset it, according to the studies. So that's a big thing. And, but that's talking yeah. about, you know, you're saying dark chocolates. Do you mean like over like 85% or something? Ideally, yes. Um, so somewhere around uh, 85 is would be ideal. 85 to 90% um, would be ideal but the more brown stuff the better basically if you think about with chocolate the the remaining percentage is always sugar it's a good way to invert it like that and think of it like that so 85% means 15% sugar 75% means 25% sugar so which one's better you know it's kind of like from that point of view it's like oh well <laughs> it's a bit of a no-brainer in it um but yes i just the, think it's important to, to kind of point it out yes very much so yeah yeah, yeah. Or you can eat lots of chocolate you know uh, oh great yeah I'll have, I'll have i'll have 60 twix and two <laughs> yeah. galaxy bars now so no. exactly. <laughs> like i always say milk chocolate isn't even chocolate so don't even go there because it is cocoa butter which is why they can call it chocolate but it's cocoa butter and milk powder and sugar mm -hmm. and then milk uh, sorry that's that yeah white chocolate rather beg pardon not white chocolate milk chocolate does contain some of the good stuff but much much less so you're going to get around 20 to 30 percent cacao in milk chocolate uh lots of lots of milk obviously and lots of sugar and then your dark chocolate 
um, again, that varies. So you've got your sort of sweet dark chocolates often contain up to 50% sugar, and then your, your bitter ones can contain as little as five or 10% sugar. So in terms of health, you want the bitterer, darker ones, but you can get dark chocolate. If people are like, Oh, I really don't like it. It's too bitter. You, there are varieties of dark chocolate, which are quite mellow in flavor. Um, I mean, if you want to give me one, I mean, this is only going to be relevant for like people in the UK, but like Tesco's do this really good Supreme. Uh, it's their cooking chocolate. I'm like, why would you use this for cooking? That's just an abuse. It's really good. It's 85% and it tastes amazing. It's got such a mellow flavor. I don't know quite how they've done it. Um, cause there are lots of other mainstream brands that don't taste that good you know that yeah. they have higher percentage and they, they start tasting bitter or some of them i've noticed i'm not going to name brands or whatever but some of them i've noticed try to make them less bitter by adding more cocoa butter which just to me makes them taste greasy so um anyway and and but do you think the, the bitterness is actually probably a good thing isn't it because it'll help with your digestion maybe or yeah yeah i mean absolutely in terms of medicinal effect it's 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 a good thing um but obviously not everyone's eating chocolate for medicinal effect are they but if you're, if you're gonna go for it for it for one reason you might as well maximize the benefits right do you know what i mean so yeah so can yeah. you talk about some of the other medicinal properties even just mention Yep. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there are, there are several. So, so the circulatory one is the biggest one. Linked to that is the benefit for diabetes, for blood sugar control. It seems to reduce the risk of type, type 2 diabetes um, and, and improves the blood sugar control. Um, there's this general risk uh, reduction in inflammation that I've already mentioned that seems to, seems to happen. In terms of mental health, I don't think it's an antidepressant. I describe it in the book as a hedonic modifier, meaning it modifies the pleasure responses. And this is one of the central hypotheses of the book, that it's a hedonic modifier and possibly antiphobic, meaning I think it reduces or attenuates conditioned fear. So it's not going to attenuate um, and this is extremely hypothetical because it's based on traditional use, folklore, and one animal experiment. So I'm like pretty out on a limb with the con with the fear one. It's a conditioned fear experiment, but it, that experiment shows that it doesn't work in the same way as just caffeine or other stimulants because caffeine increases conditioned fear. And in this rat experiment, cacao equivalent dose to something like 10 grams in a human so not a huge dose reduced conditioned fear responses encourage the rats to run out of this little in this little tea maze experiment where they run out of a little covered bit into an open bit and they sort of poke them out of their little shelter into into the open and they have a choice they can run right into a little covered bit and hide again or they can go left into an open bit and explore and obviously what they all do initially is crouch and go, I don't know what to do because they're scared. And then they will go one way or the other. And obviously if they go into the cover bit and just stay there, then they're probably terrified, you know? So that's like, okay, high conditioned fear. If they go left into the open bit, this is as I understand it, I may be getting some of the details wrong because I remember that I, I did read the whole paper on this one, the bottom line, which I was like, okay, what's the bottom line of this? The bottom line was that the rats fed cacao explored more and ran around more and spent less time frozen. Um, so they were, whereas if you put them on uh, a rat on caffeine, it will actually tend to hide more. It will speed it up. It will spend less time crap, but it will hide. It, it has a stronger or no effect on conditioned fear. So that was interesting. So in terms of the, the mental health effects of cacao, I think it's, as say, a hedonic modifier, meaning it amplifies pleasure responses. So what they found in human trials is that you can't just sit around and wait for it to improve your mood. Although a strong dose of traditional drinking chocolate will pick you up. It's like, woof, you know, that's pretty strong. But what they found with ordinary eating chocolate is that it won't necessarily improve mood. But when it was eaten mindfully, when volunteers actually concentrated while they're eating it on the flavor of it and what they wanted it to do and that they wanted their mood to improve, it did improve their mood. Whereas other things didn't like drinking water, eating crackers, eating an apple, other foods, other drinks didn't do that. Chocolate did. And what that's interesting, I go into all the chemistry of cacao. It seems to me that it lubricates the pleasure circuitry of the brain, but doesn't actually 
massively trigger it. It's a bit like the difference. The analogy I make in the book is you've got something like uh, some powerful stimulant like amphetamine that will turn the tap on full. So that's just like turning the volume up. And then you've got other stimulants that are pleasure enhancing, but ultimately, of course, bad for you, like cocaine or, or something like that, which will which are like turning up the amplifier. They don't turn up the volume. They just block the reuptake of certain neurotransmitters so that you get a net. And then something like cacao doesn't do either of those things. It's more like a mixing desk where you just, you, you turn up the bass a little bit relative to all the other sounds. Do you know what I mean? So it's kind of like you've not in, increased the volume. You've not amplified it, but you've just changed the EQ a little bit. So it becomes, so your pleasure responses are slightly amplified. And this is consistent with all the social data we've got, with all the experimental data about increased serotonin turnover and all of that kind of stuff. The fact we know it lowers cortisol uh, acutely and over intermediate sort of time periods. So both immediately after eating chocolate, volunteers had increased cortisol excretion in their urine, increased adrenaline excretion, and that effect was stronger for people who were more anxious. So the more anxious somebody was, the more cortisol dropped after eating chocolate, which is an effect that tea or coffee don't have, at least as far as we know. And um, it also had a, 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 an effect after a month in sort of reducing the average um, sort of level of adrenaline. So it definitely has this mood modifying, stress modulating effect both I think acutely and chronically, which hasn't been very well defined, mainly because most of the old textbooks insist that, oh, it's just caffeine and it's that's all it is with some sort of antioxidants in it. And it's like, well, no, actually, it's a bit more nuanced than that. So to bring it back to the health thing, uh, I've kind of gone off on a big tangent, but whatever. Um, the, the health thing would be, I'd say, cardiovascular, diabetes, reducing inflammation, um, there are actually loads more applications than that, which are in the back of the book. I've got a big, huge monograph on cacao, which at the end of it details all the specific medicinal applications for it. And I, I detail the ones which are pretty much certain and then those which are speculative. So something like using it as an assist in some kind of therapy for post-traumatic stress is pretty out there, but something that I think is theoretically possible, you know, so, and I think some of the people who are experimenting with cacao ceremonies are actually doing that. That's what they're actually doing. They're, they're attempting to de-traumatize people, right? Using cacao. And I find it fascinating that people have landed on that just, you know, experimentally. Um, I think anyway. people have quite an association with it as well, don't they? You kind of think if you're feeling a bit low and depressed, yeah, sure. You think, oh, chocolate will make you yes. feel better. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Think, which which it that often that? does, but it's 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 interesting to me that it's not. I wouldn't classify it necessarily as an antidepressant simply mm -hmm. because if you have it, like according to these trials, blah blah blah, you need intention to activate it, whatever. Like I say, if you have traditional chocolate drinks, they will definitely bring you up. But if you have one of those every day after two or three days of that, it just becomes a stimulant. It's like, it, it's, it's no different than using it like coffee and it's not gonna necessarily make you less depressed. So I thought, myself, I like to have a high dose of chocolate about three times a week. That's great, because it sort of preserves its, its mood raising effects. It's good for the health in terms of all the long-term studies and whatnot. Um, but other people might prefer to take a lower dose a little bit every day just as a treat and sort of eat that mindfully and whatever. So um, it's, it's a mood modulator, but it's, it's not exact. So if somebody had depression, I'm not sure that it would pull them out of depression. Yeah. But if somebody, like most of us, had stress-related issues, then it could probably help to lower the physiological level of stress. And I think particularly as a one-off larger dose, it could help to sort of knock you out of a rut. Anyway, I mean, all of this needs experimenting with. All of this is like really speculative, uh, uh, but anyway. I was just thinking, because you're saying people were using it with the ceremonies, that there's that connection there as well. So the health, I think the ceremony plus the chocolate, you know, I, I can see why you would connect the two together. You mean in terms of um, the traditional, you mean in terms of personal associations between chocolate and, and feeling good? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah sure. Totally. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so are there any downsides? Well, like with everything, potentially, yes. I mean, there's one thing, I mean, going through the book now, I'm constantly finding things that I forgot 
like to add in or just like little errors it's like, oh you know it's like typical seven proofreads you get it published but then i suppose that's with any book you know that's you why do that the... on the reprint and bring it out again <laughs> <laughs> hopefully we'll see but i mean that's that's that would be like okay sec- i've already got the second edition like uh, okay. i'm noting things down um the yes downside one of the main things that i forgot to put in the because i put at the end in the monograph um in the appendices like as i say all the medicinal uses and then i put in cautions and one of the cautions i forgot is a really common really common thing with chocolate heartburn it aggravates heartburn in some people um just because it's fatty and it contains caffeine so it can aggravate heartburn that's a common thing um there's also some a small study to suggest it might make acne worse particularly in teenage males <laughs> um that, so generally it's good for the skin so don't let uh, the, according to a little human study they found that chocolate unfortunately doesn't slow down wrinkling which is a real bummer but it does improve um skin quality by other measures of skin quality they, they showed that by eating chocolate for a month or whatever their skin hydration was improved or there were various measures that this sort of cosmetics company used this was just eating chocolate like dark chocolate internally for a month um so that was pretty cool um but in terms of contraindications got heartburn acne in males um then what were some of the other ones i put in the book there are there are a couple of obscure ones like wilson's disease which is too much copper because it contains a lot of dietary copper if you accumulate copper which is not a common thing but so or if you say you'd had some kind of health check up and maybe a hair mineral analysis and they said you have loads of copper then you might want to just scale down your chocolate intakes it's very high in copper um what else i think mm. one of the things i remember seeing was thinking about the histamine effect of chocolate yes that's yes that's right yeah that's another thing i mean again as well sorry yeah, this, you said something about the histamine it's got high histamine but then it also reduces allergic reaction with other foods yeah this oh, is cor- correct <laughs> it's an interesting one it's it's almost contradictory what yeah. they what they what they found is that because cacao contains a that fermented when the seeds fermented histamine is produced so they've got a little bit of histamine in them um and the urticaria society online say it's amongst those foods which they don't recommend to people who get bad urticaria um because it contains histamine and for some people it seems to make their urticaria worse i hasten to add that this hasn't been verified in clinical trials so it might be a bit like the migraine thing which i go into in the book where chocolate traditionally is supposed to not be good for migraine but when they actually tested this with people they found that it was no worse or more migraine triggering than other foods. Now I've met many people with migraines who are like, Oh no, that can't be true. Whenever I have chocolate, I have a migraine. I'm like, yes, but did somebody tell you that would happen? Because you know, it's, that's the nocebo effect, isn't it? When you come to, when you mentally associate this thing with that, Thing, then the likelihood that you will experience that thing when you eat this thing is exponentially increased because it's in your head so when they did this statistically they found so it could be the urticaria thing could be factitious but i say in the book because we know it's relatively high in histamine compared to other foods it might be a good idea if you have a very high histamine condition like urticaria like you know heat rash or whatever just to reduce your consumption of it a bit or not eat loads of it but the interesting thing for the research which you were talking about is they found that um internally and this is both i think from animal and human studies they found it reduced the production of secretory iga in the gut which is could be a mixed bag because secretory iga is a defensive antibody it's produced in the lining of the gut um to protect you from invaders and it's particularly it's one of the mechanisms actually why people with dodgy guts or dysbiosis often have catarrh and snot because if your guts are upset um it means you've got lots of naughty little microbes there and the production of secretory iga might be compromised or maybe it's all dealing with stuff down there and often the you get so you've got less antibody specific protection so your body falls back on this really you know it's like okay so we don't the immune system's not you know it's preoccupied so let's just produce more snot and then we'll just trap anything that's coming in so it's uh cool pepper 16th century apoth- apothecary said something to that effect he said if you uh somebody with qatar i'm paraphrasing because i can't remember the exact quote but he said uh, to keep the head clean keep the stomach clean something along those lines and there may be a physiological basis to that in terms of secretory iga so see 
suppressing its production may not be a good thing. It may increase the likelihood of catarrh or upper respiratory tract infection, possibly. But what it definitely did do, and I'm not saying that cacao increases catarrh or because there's no evidence that it does that. I'm just saying this is pursuing the, the logic train to its final conclusion in that direction. But what we know it did do definitely is it suppressed secretory IJ production in these animals and I think in a human trial as well. And that resulted, um, at least in this one rat model, of those rats having a much weaker reaction, inflammatory reaction to inflammatory foods. So to foods which would normally cause inflammation in the gut after they'd eaten chocolate, or being fed chocolate in their diet, cacao in their diet for a while, they had a much weaker inflammatory reaction. Whereas the rats who hadn't been fed chocolate had much worse inflammation in their gut. Um, so it seems likely, given putting that experiment together with the data that we know from animal and human trials, that it increases the, the growth of good bacteria in the gut. It seems likely that chocolate would be a really good thing for people who have food sensitivities to include in their diet. Yeah. So it's, it's as, I mean, the thing is, is there's so much nuance in these things, right? And nothing is wholly, wholly good for everyone, you know? So for my, this is that quote as well, though, that I really like. It's like they say nine out of 10 people like chocolate. The 10th person always lies, which just makes me laugh. It's not true. There are some people who genuinely don't like it, but you know, whatever. Um, so my last, my last question is, um, what was it? Yeah, what was the most um, exciting, surprising, or interesting thing that you found when you were researching the book? Exciting, surprising, interesting. Well, the most. I don't know what, what excited or surprised me the most. I mean, because I think <coughs> the bits that got me really excited is when I like particularly with my last trip to Mexico in 2018, I was looking for the foaming agents. That made me really excited. It's like, what can I, and particularly for recreating the drinks, what can I bring back and use? And this initially was something that didn't excite me that much. It's interesting. I put it in the book. It's about cacao blanco, which is a relative of cacao, Theobroma bicolor. They also call it the jaguar tree because the pods sort of like have this motley looking appearance, look a little bit like jaguar skin if you use a very strong imagination filter on it. Um, but they, they look cool. They look sort of alien to tea pods. Anyway, those seeds are used in several traditional cacao drinks. And in Oaxaca, in central Mexico, sort of central western mexico they use it um in a very particular way they put all of these seeds in pits in the ground fill them with water and ferment them for six months uh the sort of particular procedure i describe in the book and then they get them all out and they've turned into these sort of white rubbery odorless little balls that are then they're called cacao blanco white cacao and they're used as a foaming agent in one of their local atoles, this um, called atole de chocolate, which is just a plain maize atole with a chocolate foam on top. So they do like one third of cacao blanco to two thirds of the cacao seeds. And I initially wasn't that excited by this because I was like, well, it's just used in this local atole and... Um, I don't know. I tried experimenting with it by making an infusion of the cacao blanco and the infusion didn't froth. And I was like, oh. and it wasn't until 2018 when I found other foaming agents. That was really exciting. Whenever I found those, I got really, oh, this is brilliant. I can recreate it. But all of them were fresh. I couldn't bring them back to the UK. And then I suddenly realized cacao blanco seeds, they're dried. I can bring them back to the UK with me and play with them. And I put that together with this research by Diana Kennedy in her book, Oaxaca al Gusto. It's a, culinary, it's a cookbook of, of, of uh, Mexican cooking. Fantastic book. She spent uh, 20 years researching it or whatever. M most of her life, I think, actually. Uh, it's sort of like a lifetime's experience in that book. Uh, she's in her 90s now. I think she's still alive. Um, but she, anyway, amazing work, um, which I totally don't mind plugging because everyone should have it if, you're into, if you like food. Um, but anyway, so she... Uh, she described uh, the chocolate atole which i'd already seen made and whatever but she was she said and i'd already heard about from another chef called susanna trilling in oaxaca and i realized that 
it wasn't going to foam when you mix it with water. It needed to be mixed with the cacao seeds and made in a very particular way, and then it would foam. And I saw it demonstrated in 2018 in a little town called Teotitlan del Valle outside Oaxaca. Um, and I think in retrospect, that was in a sense the most exciting moment for me because I was like, oh, here's an ingredient I can bring back to the UK that I can actually get hold of that's storable, that produces this foam that will allow me to reproduce or replicate a lot of these ancient beverages that are no longer made. Um, just for my own purposes, really. So that was one. In terms of other, I'm sure there are loads of other. I mean, there was participating in Keith's cacao ceremony. That was pretty wild. I mean, I recommend you do that if you go to Guatemala and, and uh, go to Lake Atitlan. He's, he lets you in for free. It's like anyone can join the ceremonies. I wish I'd known that before I went there. <laughs> <laughs> well, next time you go, uh, Guatemala, Lake Atitlan, you know, when all this craziness is over, um, his cacao ceremonies are open to anyone and you make a donation uh, if you want to leave money afterwards. You can make a donation or you can do some housework for him. He doesn't mind. Um, so but they're pretty cool um what happens during the ceremony oh uh well basically he doses you up with a large dose of chocolate say about 40 grams talks you through it while you're coming up on the chocolate while it's starting to work um and then he gives you a sort of little guided meditation uh which is very interesting given the intention activated stuff with ordinary eating chocolate i talked about and the pharmacology where it just lubricates that pleasure circuitry you have to do something to activate its potential or cacao itself traditionally was used as an activator i believe of other drugs so it was you you know what i mean it's it's a it's a doorway the drug cacao is an opener but you've got to do the work so he he talks you through this guided meditation where he says feel into your body feel into any density any blockages you've got anywhere um, it's like proper new age stuff, but it's, 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 it's great. He sort of talks you into it and then people have really interesting reactions. Like some people start crying. Some people literally throw up. Some people are just like dancing. I thought I'd be one of the people who was crying. I was jumping about like a nutter <laughs> laughing. Uh, it was just, it was really interesting. I can somehow imagine you doing that. I don't know you, but... <laughs> well it was just it was it was an interesting reaction i you know i i thought i thought i'm sure there's going to be i'll unlock some sort of trauma and blah will come out and it was just like no it's the opposite um but i suspect people get different reactions at different ceremonies do you know what i mean depending what yeah. thing gets unlocked on that day you know set and setting and all of that context um but it's very interesting i mean whether it's I think it would be really interesting to have it assessed in some sort of formal way, like in terms of it's that it's that I don't think Keith would be up for that at all. You know, he's very much like, you know, fuck all that noise kind of thing, you know, but maybe he might be. Um, but just ha to see, to see whether people who went with particular mental health issues, I mean, he does talk, he's very cautious. He talks in his opening bit about if you're on any medication like this or that, don't do this. Like he says, M MAOIs, serotonin inhibiting medication, serotonin amplifying medication rather, or if you're on heart medication, be careful, yada, yada. So, he, you know, he's very, he's responsible with it. He sort of sets it up and says, and also make sure you've eaten a little bit, but not too much. And, you know, don't come with an empty stomach, come with a little, maybe a little bit of fruit before you come or something like that. So he's very good with that. Um, but I would be really curious to see whether people with particular mental health conditions had measurable benefit after those ceremonies because there are some people who come regularly i only went for just one i was there for three days so i went for one little drop in interviewed him um and it was it was very interesting his his cacao is very strong um i don't know where he gets it from i mean i make my own and mine's pretty strong but it's slightly different I prefer mine because with mine it's like get, it makes you happy and then afterwards that night I'll have slightly psychedelic dreams but I'll sleep with Keith's cacao there seems to be a bit of a come down for me like I've had it twice now and both in the early hours of the morning I wake up feeling a bit like oh I feel cold and a bit weird and so so but it's just it's the same plan it's just different levels of processing slightly at changing the, the chemistry it's interesting, interesting. Mm. interesting. <laughs> so um there's probably like loads of other questions I could ask you. But, um, <laughs> you're probably fed up with talking now. Um, so, <laughs> um, do you want to like give some plugs of you and your work? Yes, thank you. That's very kind. Um, 
I guess, uh, well, the book, obviously, The Secret Life of Chocolate, which, um, you know, that's my main thing at the moment. I sort of, it was released in lockdown, like literally as lockdown happened. And it was just like, oh my, <laughs> why? Uh, so that meant that we couldn't have a live launch and which was okay. I did an online launch and that, that went okay. Um, but it didn't, it did impact the sales of it because Amazon took it off because it was a new book by a new author. So they didn't have it on their former. So this is really helpful. So thank you for doing it for just getting it out there. So that's my number one thing. Um, other than that, I've just got my website, the nocturnal herbalist. If you want to look up me as a herbalist, got all my details there. And also I have a little tiny baby YouTube channel called the nocturnal herbalist as well, where I just talk about really anything that interests me. So <laughs> great. I'll put the links in anyway. Amazing. So, Thanks. Rob. It was really nice to talk to you. And you, thank you. Thank you for interviewing me. Uh, it's been good.